Listener supported. WNYC Studios. So that was a really important email that if I had not received, I would never have thought that I wanted to create a show um, because it was an invitation to write down on paper that little kind of like voice in the back of your head that you kind of never quite put to words when you're like, oh, if I could really do this and not do that and not be, um, you know, part of the daily newsroom, this is what I'd really like to do. But that this was, this said, like, write it down on paper. Before she became the host of the podcast Death, Sex, and Money, Anna Sale was a beat reporter in the WNYC newsroom. Then she pitched a show and they said yes. I'm Shamita Basu and this is Work It. The podcast, a compilation of the best moments from the live event. Here, Anna's joined by Only Humans' Mary Harris, Note to Self's Manoush Zomorodi, Another Round's Tracy Clayton, and Nerdette's Trisha Bobeda. It's an all-star cast. So the beauty of podcasting is that there are a million ways to get started. Um, and the people we're going to talk to you today have done it about a million different ways. Um, but there are two basic models. You can start in a station or a media group, or you can launch independently. Um, we're going to hear from people who have launched both ways, but these ladies, we're calling them the institutionals because they launched from within a bigger company. So I want to start off by playing a little bit of their voices so you can hear what they sound like. Why did the affair end? Because I wanted it to end, because I could not continue to, to live the way I was living. And at what point did you tell your husband? It was several months later. And you're still together. I'm Anusha Zamarodi, and this is Note to Self. I feel a little bit crazy. Yeah, but likes are also a big thing. Like, you want likes. The show where you and I search for balance in the digital age. We especially need imagination in science. It is not all mathematics nor all logic, but it is somewhat beauty and poetry. That's astronomer Maria Mitchell. We are both writers at BuzzFeed.com, the website, and we focus mainly on issues of race and gender and pop culture. Things that you can expect to hear us talk about include race. Race. It's going to happen. Also gender. Also Obama. (laughs) Yes. For obvious reasons. Yes. Mm. It's just going to come up. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) That was awesome. Um, Let's give him a round of applause. Conveniently, they all sat in order of appearance, Anna, Manoush, um, Trisha, and Tracy. All of these women found success launching their podcast from inside established brands. And of course, that comes with huge benefits. Um, You have the power of a station or a company behind you. It also means collaborating on your vision. It also means negotiating how much time you're going to spend on this podcast and maintaining all that institutional buy-in. I'm going to kick things off by asking these women to tell me a little bit about their origin stories. And I was hoping to start with Manoush, because I feel like Manoush is almost the elder states lady of this group. you told me that, and that me out. I was like, already? So you started in 2012 on the radio, evolved into a podcast, and have been in this tremendous growth period. So talk a little bit about that. I I said to Mary, I was like, 
I'm deeply, deeply envious of Anna because I feel like she got to like work it out before she showed people what she was doing, which I think you're going to explain. Whereas I feel like all my fuck ups have been done in public, like <laughs> fully, like on the radio, actually. And then also on demand if you want to go back and listen to my fuck ups. Um, so I started out at WNYC completely by accident. I had had two kids and they'd kicked my asses and my asses there was multiple after having two kids it's back to one which is good and I really didn't think that I was going to work full-time ever again like I couldn't fathom figuring that out I was so in the hole like not sleeping for a long time and um I think that's an important thing to talk about like the motherhood thing because a lot of people don't tell you how tough it can be coming back from that um but i went out for lunch with a friend of mine who had become the business editor at wnyc charlie herman and i started giving him a hard time i was like i don't get it it's like 2011 and you're not covering the tech economy you should be doing more of that new york is changing financial services down tech up and he was like all right will you do it then um he was like you're tired of hearing me Raz him so he literally he made it happen he was like there's a seven minute slot on morning edition once a week why don't we make something so I was like okay fine we'll make something um but you know it was funny I Jim Schachter actually said he's like okay we'll do it but tell her there's no job here and I was like (laughs) that's cool don't want one so it's all good um so we made it and he's like there's this thing called like podcasting which I knew about because my background was with the BBC so I definitely was I was a radio producer so I totally knew about podcasting and he's like we'll just put it on the feed as well and I think what we realized was like I couldn't keep up with all these tech websites in terms of telling you know what was happening in the tech economy because as you know it exploded but what I could do was what public radio always does, which is tell the personal stories of it, which was to hear how it was changing people's lives. And the audience really seemed, they, they pushed back. They were like, no, no, we like that, what you're doing. Um, and the station was definitely forward thinking and was like, let's really concentrate on the podcast. So within nine months, they were like, let's make it a full show. Why don't you actually come and work here? Which was like, blew my mind. And um and then I was supposed to have this awesome producer who, like, broke up with me three weeks later. But Alex Goldmark <laughs> came on, which was great. And, um, and now we've changed the name because I think we started out as literally New Tech City. How is New York's tech economy changing? It's not what we are anymore. And what I've found is, like, especially the female audience, which really gravitated toward a project we did called Bored and Brilliant in February – I think sometimes feels intimidated by the word tech. Mm. So we wanted to get rid of it. So we made it note to self and to really put the humans first, finding balance in the digital age, and but keeping tech as the parameters because I do care very deeply about that. Um, that was a very long answer. Um, so here we are. We, do, we are still on the air, but we're also a podcast. And that's one of the things I'm hoping to workshop with my group today because it's a challenge. It's a real challenge. Yeah, yeah. And Trisha, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how Nerdette started at WBEZ because I feel like you can very much relate to what Manoush is saying about juggling a lot of responsibilities. It's, uh, yeah, it's something that we started two years ago, Easter brunch, uh, the first time my co-host Greta Johnson, who's in the back of the room, and I hung out outside of our day jobs at WBEZ, it came up that we love these podcasts about pop culture and sort of you know thinking through pop culture, and had read the Julie Shapiro article and realized when we did our sort of diet of our own listening that 
was pretty much all guys. And why were they the only ones who got to talk about fun stuff and interview interesting people? And so we decided that since we worked in a building that had pretty great microphones, <laughs> and the only other things you need uh, to start a podcast, turns out, are some curiosity and caffeine, then we were ready to go. Um, <clears throat> But we spent our whole first year doing it sort of with permission off the clock in the wee hours of the morning, uh, making a weekly show. We did 50-plus episodes that first year and then came to WBEZ and said, could we have a little help? (laughs) And they said, yeah, so let's start talking about that. And so we're we're also sort of evolving that relationship. But it's still... uh, you know, sort of part of the WBZ podcast network, but not our day jobs for either of us, this weekly show that we do. So how much time do you spend on it each week versus your full-time gigs? Um, So it doesn't cut into our our sort of day gigs, and we have have help of a great producer and um, some of the the podcast, you know, team at WBZ that works with us to make it. But it's all, yeah, it's all passion project in the... In the, in the nooks and crannies of the day, if we do an interview, you know, that's my lunch kind of thing. Um, and it's been a ton of support, and it's growing. But, yeah, it's been two years and almost 100 episodes of doing that every week. Wow. <laughs> and is, has been being part of the WBEZ family sort of helped you in terms of audience We're growth? so conveniently located for guests at Navy Pier in Chicago. Um, no, but it, it really <laughs> has. I mean, all the way down. <laughs> Just keep going. The, the generosity of, of our coworkers and of the institution <clears throat> has been what's made it possible for us to do what we're doing. Um, and I think that that's something that, you know, we can't, we can't ignore the benefits of that from just being able to get your emails written back to, you know, when you're, mm-hmm. when you're booking and pitching. Um, I think, you know, a lot of folks know the difference between when you're in the freelance world and then with an institution. Like, you just get more responses from folks. You get farther down the line towards the person you're actually trying to talk to uh, when you can have sort of that established brand behind you that has respect. And so we definitely benefit from that. And we also benefit from really generous coworkers who would listen in and give feedback, people there who do live shows or who do podcasts of their own, that kind of thing. So we definitely have the you know, benefit of a community there that's very supportive of innovation. Cool. Can I ask an indelicate question? Go for it. Who owns it? We do. Huh. We are an LLC, uh, and we own our, our Nerdette Inc., Nerdette LLC. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a brand that we, you know, would like to make an empire of some kind, perhaps. <laughs> Um, Okay, Anna, Death, Sex, and Money launched a year ago at WNYC. I want you to talk about it because it's so different. You sort of started with this internal bake-off competition. I wonder if you could explain the origin to folks who may not know it. Yeah, um, I had a very charmed origin story, so um, (laughs) I just want to put that out there at the top. Uh, um, WNYC, I was working here as a politics reporter, so my day job was covering campaigns, and... um, I was getting a little tired of covering campaigns. My former editor is sitting right here. I think she, I think she could tell. I was a little worn, ragged from campaigns. Um, and and uh, an email showed up in my email inbox that was a memo um, from uh, the former uh, VP of new programming or VP of content development at WNYC, and it was announcing a contest uh, at the station for everyone that worked at WNYC. Um, for show ideas. And the prize at the end was the opportunity to get to pilot this idea. Um, So that was a really important email that if I had not received, I would never have thought that I wanted to create a show um, because it was an invitation to write down on paper that little kind of like voice in the back of your head that you kind of never quite put to words when you're like, oh, if I could really do this and not do that and not be... Um, you know, part of the daily newsroom, this is what I'd really like to do. But that this was 
this said, like, write it down on paper. And it was uh, a set of, I think it was like six questions um, was the treatment that they asked for for the contest entry. And it was really basic, concrete things. What is this show? Why is this show needed? Who is your audience? What, what, what else do they listen to? What else do they read? Who should host this show? Um, and what does it sound like? And uh, I remember very clearly, like, writing the sentence... I should host this show. <laughs> and here's why. And, and it took a little nerve. Um, but, uh, and the idea for Death, Sex, and Money came from a very personal place. I was walking my dog. And um, at the time, I was uh, divorced in my early 30s, like thinking about my relationship to New York City, not sure where my life was going, and thinking a lot about how I just wanted to hear people's stories about how they'd figured out moments of these like really um, key transitions in life. And so death, sex, and money, I thought of, which was like, these are the things that I'm thinking about and worrying about and feel really alone in. And death is sort of the idea of, like, purpose in life and that we only have so much time, so our decisions matter. Sex was, like, family relationships, you know, all those sex. Um, And money was, you know, how to survive and also the race for status and how to negotiate our relationship with that. Um, So that was the idea, and I pitched it, and um, I was one of the finalists. And so I got to leave my newsroom job and keep my benefits and keep my pay, which was awesome because podcasters need to get paid. Um, And I got to figure out what this show was, like take that treatment and then have some time to figure out what does this sound like? Like, what is this? And um, it started with just collecting tape, doing interviews from one interview, cutting like a 90 second excerpt that I could play for people in meetings to tell them that like basically show that I wasn't wasting WNYC's <laughs> time. Um, and that, I think, was the scariest feeling throughout was like, this is, this is the opportunity of a lifetime, and I do not want to waste it. And I didn't know how to make a podcast. I had been covering news for years, and so that was really scary. Um, but what got me through was having an incredible editor who still edits me named Emily Botine. Uh, I also now have an incredible producer named Katie Bishop, who's sitting right here. And so I think as we talk about women in podcasting, it's important to talk about the incredible women who work on the teams that get these things out, because death, sex, and money would not sound the way it does without the staff that that works on it. Um, And so we were able to launch after piloting and after lots of edits and lots of iterations, and we launched with three shows at once. Um, and uh, one of them was about my love life, and um, this was another charmed part of the launch of Death, Sex, and Money, which was we got this tape um, of me talking to Alan Simpson, the former senator of Wyoming, uh, with his wife in Wyoming. I interviewed them at their kitchen table. They talked about things that I never thought they would and didn't even ask about, like <laughs> Ann Simpson just, just starts talking about intimacy and sex in their relationship, um, in their 60-year marriage, And so I came back to New York, and I was like, I think this tape is good. (laughs) And and so with that tape, we pitched This American Life. And so then that episode ran the week that we launched Death, Sex, and Money. So then we had three episodes to sort of capture any curious listeners who might have heard us on on This American Life. So um, that was awesome. And that was another just thing that, that... Ira Glass is really gracious and generous to podcasters who don't work for his company, but who, you know, he, he invites people to discover new shows and, and just to be like specific, I think you topped like the iTunes list that we, I mean, I think you, you really like skyrocketed from that one. Yeah. 
It was amazing. It was, um, it was just a little like thing that I thought was really interesting. Um, the, when the radio version of This American Life went out, we saw a spike in the iTunes charts, but it wasn't until the podcast version went out that we went up to number one. And so that was really instructive early on that, oh, the way that you get podcast listeners is by reaching podcast listeners because podcasting still takes kind of a, uh, a ramp up to know how to find the audio. Um, but yeah, and then, and then there was the like, holy moly, we have this audience for this show that we don't really know what it is yet. <laughs> and now we have to just keep making shows. Um, so that was, that was the next fear. <laughs> and well, continues to be. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tracy, I wanted to go to you last just because you're the newest podcast. And you're also the podcast that's starting at a place that doesn't do or didn't do audio Mm -hmm. for a while. So I guess I'm wondering, how did you convince BuzzFeed to do this? Why did it make sense for BuzzFeed to do your podcast? And and what have been the specific challenges and freedoms of launching at a place where this isn't their wheelhouse? Um, I'm kind of nervous to tell the origin story because I found out yesterday that my co-host, Heaven, and I have two very different stories. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have a terrible memory, so I'm apt to... (laughs) So her version is probably the most correct, but since I'm on the microphone, we're going to go with my version. Um, But um, so Heaven and I work at BuzzFeed, and I feel like a lot of people figure that working and writing for BuzzFeed is like you come in and, you know, you're wearing jeans and you're like, oh, I want to do this crazy thing. And then your manager's like, sure, go ahead. And then you just kind of do whatever you want. And it's actually kind of true, like a little bit. Um, and so Heaven and I spent, um, we collabed a lot on pieces that were mostly about race and gender. Um, and also I like, you know, Rihanna and Beyonce because we're not talking about them enough. I don't care how much we're actually talking about them. <laughs> Not enough. It's never enough. Um, but the thing about working for BuzzFeed is that, you know, it's a place that encourages you to do whatever you want to do, but it doesn't come without its hurdles if you are a woman and if you are a person of color. And um, it's kind of like a sad lottery to win when you're both because it's like, oh, I get extra helpings of oppression. This is awesome. Uh, <laughs> um, and so a lot of our conversations. Um, we do enjoy the occasional drink and the occasional happy hour. So a lot of like our self-care and therapy is like just going to happy hour and getting a drink and just kind of talking and venting. And we had a lot of conversations about the frustrations with trying to get our voices heard and seen by the audience. Because even though we can do what we want in the newsroom, you know, it doesn't always like find. It's not like a piece about why black women are whatever, you know, is not going to get a million hits. Cat gifs, sure, you know. Um, but, I mean, it's it's very frustrating to have to figure out how to package yourself and how to um, stay true to yourself and your voice, but also be palatable enough for BuzzFeed's general audience, which is the opposite of me. <laughs> like, it's not 30-plus. It's not black. It's, it's, it's like a 17-year-old girl or something. I don't even know. But was that an opportunity for them? I'm sorry. But was that an opportunity for them? Did they see it as an opportunity to speak Um, to a different audience? Well, we've had lots of meetings about, like, how to reach, how to increase our black readership. Um, It's really, really hard um, for obvious reasons or for 
good reason, I think. I think that um, black readers are very um, wary and suspicious of big media outlets for very, very good reason. So we've had like meetings about how to, you know, get our voices out there. Um, but the way that audio happened, in my opinion, which, which might not be right, um, at some point after I was hired, we hired this teeny tiny little ray of sunshine that is always running and jumping, and she has endless energy. That's Miss <laughs> Julia Furline here. As, <clears throat> like, her energy will just, like, pull you in and kind of make you tired because she's always just like, yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's do something. And I'm like, I need a nap first. But um, <laughs> she was hired as our audio person and she was the only audio person there. And bless her heart, she had no other support. She one day was running around the office still in pillows from the couches and still in people's throws <laughs> so she could like make a recording studio in like this little <laughs> closet. And I was like, oh my gosh. And um, But once Julia got there, it was like, oh, so now we have the potential to maybe one day do like some podcasts and podcasting. And here's where our versions of this story kind of differ. I say that it was just sort of like a, a very organic, like, oh, well, now that we might do some podcasting someday, maybe this would be a good chance for us to, you know, just like get our voices out there. You know, like we can do this thing maybe. So maybe we could do this thing. Heaven's version goes as such. I'm tired of the frustration of not being able to be ourselves. And, like, I'm tired of having to figure out how we can get people to read the stuff about race. We need a podcast because a podcast would, like, kind of cut out the middleman, sort of. And it's just our conversations. And there's so much that you can say about race and gender when you can actually say it with your mouth. You know, even if people can't see you, you know, it's it's a very different experience to have those conversations when it's spoken word rather than written word. So that's a very – it's more of a – purposeful, I want a podcast for this reason type of thing. And I'm just kind of like, well, yeah, you know, podcast, we could just maybe. That kind of works with your personalities, though, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's that's a very perfect portrait, I think, of our personalities. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So eventually we hired um, our podcast mom, as we like to call her. I don't know if she's here. Jenna Weiss Berman. She's amazing at each and everything that she does. It just so happens she's a great producer. And uh, we hired her, and we just, and also Eleanor Kagan, who is amazing. This is like, I can't imagine there being a better team of producers to work with. I'm sure that all of your guys are like, great, but <laughs> the pod squad is just like amazing. Um, but I mean, really, with their guidance and their know how, I know nothing about podcasts and podcasting. I don't, I don't, I don't listen to podcasts. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I have. Horrible ADD, and I do not have the attention span to just like sort of listen, listen, sit and listen to people talk. There have been to date three, not including my own, three podcasts that I have listened to full episodes of and really liked, but just could not stick with it because I would put it on. And then, like, 40 minutes later, I'm like, what should I have for dinner later? And then I'm like, wait, what did they just say? And I have to rewind. Anyway, I say all this to say I'm extremely new to not only making podcasts, but also listening to podcasts. And um, everyone else is just like, okay, just sit here and talk about this. And I show up and I do that. And they're like, okay, good job. And I'm like, all right, great. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Manoush, you still do a radio segment. Yes. In addition to a podcast Uh each week. And I guess I'm wondering what the difference is for you (laughs) between what you do on the radio and what you do on the podcast and how that thinking is evolving, because I know that it is. 
Yeah. Well, uh, I, I've had to try to figure that out, too. At first, those two things were the same. And, um, and then I started to find my voice, and we started to get nastier comments from the on-air people. because What I, kind of comments? Like, why is she there sort of thing. I think we're going to talk about that more tomorrow. Um, and then, you know, a lot of credit to Dean Capello, who I think is here, who would say, that means you're doing something right. Mm-hmm. So that made me feel better that I was like, oh, they hate me. But actually, he's like, no, that's good. That's good that they hate you. That's good. Because they have a strong emotion about you. Yeah, because I think they were, you know, and I get that often every week. I think there's some people, well, there's a twofold problem, right? Which I actually just emailed, I think, Nick Kwa, who's here in the back. The problem to me is what Nick and I were emailing. And I said, by the way, we have a new name. And he said, yeah, I hear you in between Satirius on Wednesday mornings. How do I, and what color am I? I think I'm the gray group. I'm not sure, which makes sense, considering. Um, But um, how do I make those people who hear me on a Wednesday morning, how do I convince them to go to the podcast to understand that those are two very different products that we are now creating? Um, So in an effort to do that, we are going to start actually being shorter on air. Um, And I'm hoping that that ignites people who are like, oh, but I, I love hanging out with her on Wednesday mornings. Like, not the haters, um, <laughs> obviously. Maybe they will be then like, I want to listen to the full podcast. So it's weird because on the one hand, I think being on air, we get good guests because we get people who still very much care about being on New York airwaves. Um, I think when I'm on, when I sub for Brian Lehrer or Leonard Lopate, that's helpful because people are familiar with me from that. They're not like, who is this woman? also lots of haters there you'll hear more about that tomorrow but um but i think i have not cracked this like i haven't figured it out i am i'm a news person by trade so doing the full-length show um was like a mega journey for me to figure that out how to sound like myself on air instead of the news version of me um and that is what i've been encouraged by the station by dean by laura by jim is to be that me on air but sometimes it sounds weird i think like you've got like you know linda wertheimer or or renee montaigne and then satirius and then there i'm hanging out for seven minutes you know what i mean it's a little like disconcerting i think to people so it's like finding where that fit i mean it's experimentation completely yeah well, so we're going to go to you guys for questions in a little bit. But before we did that, um, I wanted to talk to each of you about sort of tips and tricks about audience growth and how to do that. Um, I wanted to start with Anna because I feel like you've done a bunch of really interesting things. You mentioned that This American Life for the launch just, what, a week or two ago, you did a segment on Terry Gross. I'm wondering how all of – and you also collaborated with Dan Savage. So I'm wondering how all of these things sort of influenced audience growth, whether you saw number – spikes after them, what worked, what didn't. Yeah. Um, so I mentioned that, that the This American Life um, experience was amazing, and it also showed us that the podcast audience is who came to us, the This American Life podcast audience as opposed to the broadcast audience. Although it is nice. The, the thing that's nice about broadcast is I hear like people who aren't podcast listeners, they're like, yeah. oh, I, I know all about your love life. You know, it, they know nothing about the podcast, but they heard it, you know, driving. Um, so, so like broad awareness is really good from, for broadcasting, hence the name. Um, but uh, what we found is like you want to find people you know, I find people who are podcast listeners. And so the This American Life experience showed us that. That was our big, first big um, 
leap in audience. Uh, and then we, um, we held on to that, which was like a, a major achievement because that was scary. Like we're putting out our first, you know, weeks of episodes and, and um, people who found us through This American Life, you know, they come with some expectations about what they'll listen to and what they'll spend their time with. Um, but then the next big leap had nothing to do I mean, it had probably had something to do with some of the programs we were putting out, but we put out some good shows in October, which also happened to coincide with this thing called Serial. Um, and so then it was like a new kind of bump um, because all of a sudden people were learning how to find podcasts because of Serial, because people were talking about it. Um, and then, so that was another nice leap. Um, and then I think that the next leap was we did an episode about cheating um, that came out in March or late, late February. And, and it's hard to tell exactly where that audience growth came from, but, but we, we did a few things on that. It was like a provocative topic that, that, and you were hearing people talk about cheating with an openness and an intimacy that you don't often hear. So I think it got an audience that way. We also had a carousel ad in iTunes, um, which are those like longer ads at the top. Um, and those really do help um, with awareness. Like, I, I don't often go to the iTunes landing page, but we do see a leap whenever we do that, and that involves pitching the iTunes guy and saying, hey, six weeks ahead of time, can we advertise this episode? We're proud of it. And then he'll say yes, and then you get in the art, and that's how that happens. Um, and then we, I went on, Dan Savage had previously been on our show, been a guest on Death, Sex, and Money, so we pitched him and said, because you and I talked about cheating, on your interview, we actually did this cheating episode where we have all these listener stories. Can I come on your show on the Savage on, on Savage Lovecast and talk about cheating? So I was a guest on Dan Savage's podcast, and then that led to a whole um, group. We heard from you know it's hard to tell where people come from, but we heard emails from people. I heard you on Dan Savage's podcast. Just found out about the podcast through Dan Savage and that sort of thing. And so that was another uh, leap. Um, and um, yeah, and then the Terry Gross thing was just the, like, <gasps> tears. <laughs> like, she's my hero. And that just, we got an email um, at one point this year um, from, from Danny Miller, from her executive producer, that they liked the show and they wanted to talk about ways to work together. Um, so that was, like, just awesome. Uh, and so I contributed an interview uh, that came out last week. And... Um, and so, and she referred to the podcast, and so we got some more sort of visibility and discoverability through that. Tracy, you kind of talked about how, on the one hand, it's very freewheeling how you started, and then on the other hand, lots of meanings about, mm -hmm. you know, goals and upping uh, readership. And I just, I wonder, as a new podcast, do you guys have a listenership goal that you're driving towards, or is it more free form, or are you sort of seeing how it goes? How, how does that work from inside? Um, for me, it's free form. <laughs> I feel like for the more responsible of the, of the crew, there are probably some very concrete goals that they have. Um, I mean, I think the, the general goal of all of us though, is to kind of just like take over the world eventually. So we would love to like have millions and millions of listeners. Um, but it's, it's kind of like night and day, the issue for me of growing an audience via the written word and then via the podcast, um, with the things that I write, it's like a constant thing that's on my mind. Like, how do I, how do we convince white people to read <laughs> the stuff that we write? But um, with 
the podcast, I don't think about it at all. And it's so freeing to not have to figure out how to sell myself to people who may or may not be interested in the things that I'm interested in and the things that I'm talking about. Um, and Do you I think that's important for you. Like yes. if it changed, would it change the way you are? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I feel like the, the reason that we have so much fun making the show is that it's literally just a conversation between two girlfriends and you over hear that bourbon. Yeah. Sometimes too much bourbon, which you also hear. <laughs> um, but um, I feel like if we were, like, having meetings about, okay, how do we get white people to listen to the show, it, it dies. It ends then, you know? I mean, we actually do have a really great white listenership, which I'm very thankful for. But, I mean, it's that wasn't the point at all, you know? Like, there's – I'm very confident that, you know, when we go in and we're, like, we're going to be true to ourselves. And the genuineness of, you know, whatever it is that we bring when we're together will find its audience. Like, it'll land where it's supposed to land and it'll go – to where it's supposed to go and people who listen to it and they're like, hey, I'm really into this. I'm going to come back next week. Then they'll come back. And if they're like, oh, this isn't my thing, then they leave and that's fine, you know? But I feel like once we begin to like try to, and I mean, the thing, a big reason as to why I don't really listen to podcasts is because um, I just assumed that um, from NPR mostly, my mother loves NPR. She always, car talk was her big thing. And I'm like... (laughs) Okay, girl, I guess, whatever. Um, But, you know, just being, like, in the car and just listening, you know, it was, I just kind of tuned it out because it was just, like, the voices of white men, like, identifiably white male voices. And I'm from Kentucky, so I don't sound like those dudes for a number of reasons because I'm a woman and because I have an accent and because, you know, I'm black, you know? Um, So it was very, I mean, I just, I'm just like, you know, they're probably not going to talk about stuff that I care about. So why would I make the effort also like i was coming off of like four years at a really racist school so i was kind of like i was like white people i've got enough of you so that's fine um i mean that lovingly of course um (laughs) but it was just really really important once uh the prospect of doing the podcast came out that i wouldn't have to you know try to learn non-regional diction and get rid of my accent and like you know we cuss a lot on the show which i'm very glad that we can do because i mean i can really like be my full self that way um And the reason that I know the show is working, I mean, you know, yeah, we get like lots of tweets and our bosses are very excited because, you know, we're helping to expand their brand. But the thing that really makes me know that we're doing a good job is the emails that we get from other women of color who say, oh, my God, you sound just like me. You sound like me and my girlfriends just sitting around. I feel like I know you. I feel like I'm in the audit in the studio with you. And that to me means that we are carving out a space for people who don't sound like the car talk guys, you know, and people who do have a little southern twang or like you know whatever so um it's it's a joy to not have to worry about pleasing someone else mm-hmm. which is amazing yeah, amen, right? <laughs> <laughs> so i'm wondering if you guys have questions in the audience that these ladies can answer hi this is a question for tracy yes my name is andrea bernstein i work here hi and uh, I'm a huge fan, oh, like yay. since day one thank of another you, round. Thank you. And um, I basically feel so all the rest of these women come from radio stations, and I basically feel like most outfits that are print-based, so print or web, um, don't really do podcasts very well, and don't really value audio. Uh, and uh, so I like. Wondering if you can talk a little bit more about uh, how you uh, sort of, you know, pitched and sold the idea at BuzzFeed and how you sort of exist within that ecosystem of people who are not everybody producing audio. Right. I sort of feel 
and I don't know if this is like just a me thing or not, but I mean, I know that BuzzFeed is always into like the next big thing and they do it in like a very smart and genius way that I could not even begin to explain. Like how they know that this is going to be the thing that takes off. Maybe there's like a wizard in a closet. <laughs> I don't know. But um, once podcasting took off, it seemed like a no brainer that they would, you know, throw their head into the, I don't know what the phrase is. Throw the head into the fire, into the ring, in the ring. Thank you, Ash. Throw that into the fire. What? Um, That's just a waste of a good hat. I know. I know. <laughs> Do not throw hats into the fire. Um, anyway, it made sense that they would give it a go. But also, I mean, and this could just be like my own paranoia, but I've always felt that we needed to like prove that podcasts and podcasting is like worth them spending time on and spending their money on and. Um, and I kind of worried and obsessed over it for a while, but I then learned that I'm like the only person at BuzzFeed who does not listen to podcasts. <laughs> so there's the interest is already there. Um, and then once the once the show took off, um, my worry over whether or not we'll be taken seriously within a print company sort of it's not gone all the way, but it's it's dwindling. And I feel like um, BuzzFeed is a company that really listens to numbers very, very well. Numbers and also um, uh, social stuff. You know, like, they keep tabs on what, like, people are talking about on Twitter and Facebook. And so, like, they can physically see that, like, yeah, this is, like, a real thing that we could, like, do long term. And so um, right now there's just two podcasts from BuzzFeed. There's another round. And then there's also Internet Explorer hosted by Kate Anisopoulos and Ryan Broderick, who are just weird and lovely and just they strange internet stuff so if you're in a straight into and even if you're not like just it's a good one to check out too but um these two are doing well and i think that eventually they'll entertain the idea if they probably are already of doing other podcasts so but yeah i did feel for a while that i had to like kind of elbow a little bit you know and be like you know this isn't a post but it's still like a good thing so hope that answered your question i have a question for anna I listen to Death, Sex, and Money all the time. I get super excited every time there's a new episode. I think that's true for a lot of people. But what I've noticed about the guests you have on and the interviews you do is that you seem to, when I'm listening to someone tell their story, I'll have a question, and then you ask that question pretty much every (laughs) single time. (laughs) And I'm wondering, like, how you get to that place of, like, interviewing and knowing not just, you know, like, what question do I want to know, but what does my audience want to know from this person when I interview them? Because I think that's the tricky part is not just, you know, being, like, sort of insider baseball and having your own ideas and having probably already done research on this person, you know, like, you ask questions that, you know, you feel like the listener wants to hear, and it always comes across really natural, and they answer them, <laughs> even if like, they're really intimate or hard questions. So just, how do you get to that place of being able to talk to the guests that way? I think that's practice. Like, I think we don't talk about enough in podcasting that um, like, it takes a long time to learn how to be a journalist and, um, and be a radio journalist. I think that when you're saying that, what I think about is in the process of an interview, uh, I'm cutting the tape while I'm hearing it. So I'm, I'm thinking about the audience, what the audience is, is going to hear, what's, what they're not going to hear. I mean, Death, Sex, and Money is edited. So um, some of the questions that I ask don't get answered, and we just don't include that in the episodes. Um, uh, 
unless it's an interesting not answer. Um, but I think it's like it, it's it's this combination of like th- you're editing while you're listening, and then also really listening to the answer. Like I I was just talking to somebody last night about um, we did an episode with John Cameron Mitchell, who created Hedwig and um, Hedwig, and he mentioned several times we were in his apartment how having a, this rent controlled apartment had enabled him to make the choices he wanted to 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 follow his kind of artistic vision and he didn't have to make compromises he mentioned rent control rent control rent control and then i said well, how much is your rent and then he said eighteen hundred dollars a month and this person i was talking to last night was like thank you i wanted to know how much he was paying in rent <laughs> and it and so it's like you know if if so i could tell when he was saying rent control rent control rent control he'd probably tell me how much he was paying in rent it would not be my first question to him um but uh it's like so that, that, I think, is it's hearing the cues that you're getting in an interview and then making sure you follow up. And also, I think, from covering politics and, like, watching people like Andrea, like, I, you develop a comfort with asking the slightly rude question when you cover politics. And so I feel like I'm using that muscle also. Um, yeah, so I think when I think about, like, learning to interview, it's because I've worked with really good journalists who who I've been able to learn from for lots of years, yeah. Um, This might be for Anna or for any of you. Uh, When you were talking earlier about how to grow your podcast audience, those are really great tips. But what if you're coming from an organization, what if your podcast is either produced just you in your closet or your uh, institutional support is a very, very small institution with nothing budget, no marketing budget, and when you try to get the guy at iTunes, he's basically like... You're a little nonprofit. No, I'm not going to help you out. How do you grow your audience if you're really a micro podcast? You'd be the swamp fox. So the swamp fox. Uh, that was not the answer. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Justin Kaufman, who uh, is now hosting his own show at WGN in Chicago, but was the executive producer of talk programming at WBZ for a long time. Uh, his his anthem for the digital team when he was leading it and for our local shows is, you know, you don't you don't march in a row and battle that way, you are a swamp fox, which is something to do with military history, and if I try to recount it exactly, I'll get it wrong, and this is on the internet, so I'll just say, be a swamp fox. Um, and what that means is, is you do everything you can to sort of build, build your Dumbledore's army, build your army of people who are like-minded by you know, encouraging people to be a part of your show through social media. So I work on the digital team by day at WBEZ, and all of those platforms are free to use, and they have an incredible power to create connection. It's the new word of mouth, right? Um, you know, I, whenever I check our Twitter mentions column, my favorites are always, how did I not know about this until today? This is my podcast soulmate. That kind of reaction from people who are discovering it six months in, nine months in, two years in, is from a friend telling them about it. And so I think that the organic growth through social media of a show requires a lot of care and feeding of that community. It's not just an audience. You're not just broadcasting. We interact with our fans. Um, you know, they interact with the show through voicemails and emails. We you know, take pitches from them. Early on, we would invite people who had pitched that we talked to an author. We'd invite them in to talk to the author when that author came. Um, so we, you know, we really have tried to break down some of the traditional journalism rules in that way to say, you suggested we read this book. You're right, it's great. We're booking the author. Come on down. And that person becomes a, a lifelong fan of the show and a part of our community more than a part of our audience. We have time for one more quick question. Can I just add yeah. two things? I think get, get comfortable with self-promotion. Like, that's real. Like, it's, it feels uncomfortable. Like, 
it feels uncomfortable, but like sending that email to the people who send out, you know, podcast reviews or recommendations of podcast episodes, like get in their list and say, I saw you recommended this. This is an episode that I'm really proud of for these reasons. Would love if you take a listen. And once you get in those, you know, once you show up on somebody's Twitter feed who's got more followers than you, then it kind of grows. Um, so like make stuff you're proud of and that will help you um, self-promote because then it feels like you want to share it. You want more people to listen to it. Okay, one more quick question. Hi. Um, so I have a conversational-based podcast. It's called For Colored Nerds. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher for anybody who wants to know. <laughs> In the vein of self-promotion. Yeah. 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 Um, so we... We both have like regular day jobs. I'm actually not at my regular day job right now to be here, so thank you for having me. Um, <laughs> but um, we do it sort of like in our spare time and like with our spare money, and we are starting to experiment more with having interviews and narrative segments. So this question, um, like by the way, right now, like you could get me to talk about my entire second grade year of life, and I would tell you. <laughs> so you're a really great interviewer, which everybody knows. And also, Tracy, you guys do a lot of um, interview segments and things like that while still incorporating that into the conversational style of your show. If you guys could sort of talk a little bit about, um, I guess, how these interviews and how these stories come to you, like the ratio of how many you find versus how many people find you. And then also if you could say more about securing an interview and securing a guest and sort of getting that person to feel like you're going to treat them well and make them sound cool and smart and awesome. I want to hear about your Shirlane McRae interview because I thought oh. you did a wonderful job. Thank yeah, you. Thank and, you so much. And they're, they're hard to get with the Blasio, you know, the Blasio crew. Yeah. yeah. Um, definitely hard to get. I had no part in that at all. That was all Eleanor Kagan, who we were fortunate enough to snare from NPR. Sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> but she is just a whiz at securing these amazing... We also talked to Brandy and, you know, people who would never look twice at me. You know, she's just... She just knows what she's doing. And this is also the benefit of having institutional backing behind you, right? You know what I mean? When it's just you, like, how how on earth would I, Tracy Clayton, get Shirley McRae into a dimly lit studio to talk about it? Like, it would never happen, you know? Um, so, um, Eleanor worked her magic and um, we had... We always have, like, pretty big... Or pretty intensive planning meetings to discuss, you know, what are we going to talk to this particular person about? How do we want the conversation to go? And also, how do we keep them feeling comfortable? Are we going to have alcohol? Are we not? We did not have any alcohol with Shirley McCray. <laughs> we were like, maybe not. Maybe not. I also don't think we used any profanity then because, I mean, you know, we, we had, to, had to cater. Um, but, you know, we talked because the conversation was a very sensitive conversation that at times touched on her experiences with her daughter and her family and herself and her father. And um, you don't want to push too much, but you also want to, like, get a story there. And so what I learned, because I'm just now learning how to interview people, is, you know, you sort of let we sort of let her lead the conversation like around her family and what she once she touched on her family. Then we were like, Oh, well, can you tell us more about this? Can you tell us more about that? And, um, I'm a very, um, what's the word? I deal a lot and maybe too much in like feelings and like vibes. So I was like reading her body language to see if she ever like tensed up or, you know, if she was just like kind of shying away from something. Um, I, 
try to notice that a lot because I feel like I'm better in that area than actually like interviewing. I'm of the opinion that heaven leads these interviews and I kind of just like, you know, I'm like in the backcourt, you know, like she misses a shot. Maybe I'll come up. Maybe I'll get it. Maybe I won't. I don't know. <laughs> um, but we were, we were very nervous because we wanted to handle it and treat it gently and respectfully, but also make it like something that's really good and informative to listen to. Um, I cannot remember the second part of your question. Bad memory. Oh, okay. Um, right? Yes, you I feel like it's mostly us going up to other folks, but I mean, we get a lot of really terrible pitches, you know, like <laughs> somebody just wrote a new spicy summer novel and what? There's an so interview. many spicy There's summer so novels. There's so many spicy <laughs> summer novels. Um, so those we, we toss out. Um, I like to try to like romance people via Twitter to come on the show. It's only worked once, but I think <laughs> I'm pretty positive it's going to end in like a marriage. Like <laughs> it's going to work. I don't know if you're familiar with Jadena, the singer, but we got to have a thing now. So, you know, <laughs> um, but correct me if I'm wrong. I think we go after more of them than actually come to us. Thank you guys for doing this. You are amazing. That was Mary Harris, Manoush Zamarodi, Tracy Clayton, Anna Sale, and Trisha Bobeda speaking at the 2015 Work It Festival. Both the festival and the podcast are produced by WNYC Studios and are made possible by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with additional support from the Harnish Foundation.